Friends, in 2020, we sustained a lot of losses. Kids were sent home from school, sporting events were shut down, graduations canceled, weddings postponed. These things were all sad. But perhaps there was nothing sadder than this. And this is why last summer, this sign that I'm about to show you went viral. In an effort to ensure proper social distancing protocols, and because, quote, people can't help but sing the lyrics, the words are easy to remember, it's fun, and it definitely always brings a crowd together, Murphy's Irish Pub announced that Neil Diamond's classic tune, Sweet Caroline, is canceled, officially banned from the watering hole. How sad is this sign that's out front? There will be no touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching you. In fact, this is true, you can look it up. Neil Diamond even joined in the fun, putting out a tweet saying, I know we're going through a rough time right now, but I love all of you, and I think maybe if we sing together, we'll just feel a little bit better. And he proceeded to sing Sweet Caroline, the COVID version, now including lines like, hands, washing hands, reaching out, don't touch me, I won't touch you. It's funny, isn't it? Sweet Caroline, at its heart, is this song about companionship and community, closeness and proximity. And it's ironically also become a song that inspires companionship, community, closeness and proximity. If you don't believe me, go to a dueling piano bar one night or a Red Sox game and watch what happens when it comes on. There's really nothing like it. The truth is that over the last 18 months, we suffered a lot of losses together. Community, communally and individually. We've lost sports and we've complained. We've lost graduations and we've protested. We've lost weddings, we've rescheduled. We've lost indoor dining and we moved outside. Yet the thing that's been lost the most, that scientifically I proved you matters the most, is community, companionship, closeness, and proximity. Yet it seems like we've barely flinched. We now have Google Meet. We have Dash and Dine. We even have online church, right? And I haven't heard anybody complain about these things. In fact, if I'm honest, I've heard a lot of people say, I even like this better. I'm telling you, the most important thing stolen from us over the last 18 months was community and proximity. And we've given it away all too freely. Now, now don't get me wrong. This has nothing to do with responsible so social distancing measures, quarantines, or medically mandated shutdowns. I get those, I understand those, I comply with those, I see their necessity. But what shocks me coming out of it, what I'm fearful the most about, is that we've lost our understanding of the purpose, the power, and the necessity of gathering, of community, of closeness, companionship, of proximity. I fear that not only have we grown used to being six feet apart, but we like it. John Ortberg cited some brilliant statistics recently on the necessity of proximity, of hands reaching out, touching other hands. He referenced a recent experiment on mice where they were placed in a habitat with not enough food or water. And when that happened, the mouse's blood pressure skyrocketed. But if they put that same mouse in the same situation and they placed him in it with his brothers and sisters, his blood pressure didn't even move. You see, we're all social beings. We, we are literally created for community. God from the dawn of creation said, it is not good for man to be alone. And I'm here to tell you, it is not. We not only suffer without community, 
We can die without it. It's scientifically provable. Robert Putnam, in his book, Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, he found that isolated people, people like so many of us over these last months, are three times more likely to die than people that are embedded in deep communal relationships. In fact, Putnam found that people who had bad health habits, smoking, eating, poor eating habits, obesity, alcohol use, but had, had strong social ties, they lived significantly longer than the people who had great health habits but were isolated. Jana, our small group's director, actually has a new saying. You can buy the t-shirt out in the lobby. It's better for you to eat Krispy Kreme in groups than kale by yourself. Another study concluded something similar, that people with strong emotional connections did four times better fighting off illnesses than those who are more isolated. These people were less susceptible to colds and had less virus than the relationally isolated subjects. I mean, isn't that ironic? That the same steps we've taken over the last 18 months to keep us healthy, if we don't reverse them now when this pandemic is over, those same things will harm us. Really interesting. He concludes that if you make no other changes in your life, no more exercise, you don't change your diet, but you join a small group when you weren't in a small group before, you cut the odds of your dying this year in half. I'm here to tell you this morning, if you want to live to see next summer, go see Jenna in the hallway or shoot her an email after the services this morning. The most interesting of the stories Ortberg shared amidst all the statistics was a story from a, a book called The Deep Down Dark. It, chronicled a story you might remember about 33 Chilean miners that got trapped in a mine in 2010 for 69 days. A giant stone, one that weighed twice uh, uh, the, uh, the weight of the Empire State Building, came crashing down and buried them all alive. No food, very little water, no light, and very, very little hope. Their odds of survival were actually calculated at 2%. Well, as time went by, as death looked to those miners more and more imminent, and each man began to embrace their coming uh, mortality, they began to deal and wrestle with their regrets, their shortcomings. At one point, as hope began to dim and, and remorse grew, they asked one of the miners, a professed Christian guy by the name of Jose Enriquez, to pray for them. And so he did. In fact, in the story, he gets down on his knees, and some of the others do too, and he leads them in prayer, beginning with a confession, what they had discovered about themselves in a way. He starts, we aren't the best of men, Lord, but have pity on us. And in fact, at moments like these, there's no more time left for pride or pretending. So the, the man they began to call El, El Pastor, he begins to get specific. Victor Segovia, he knows that he drinks too much. Victor Samora is too quick to anger. Pedro Cortez thinks he's been a poor father to his young daughter. And surprisingly, as he called them out, none of the men objected to the honest public appraisal of them. In the deep, down, dark place, buried underneath the earth, while with death staring them in the face, these men discovered a new kind of community based on intimacy and proximity and closeness. They began to organize around it, meeting every day for their one meal, having a spoonful of tuna or a little cookie or water. And, and then one of the leaders would give a short sermon, and the men would kneel and pray. 
God, forgive me for yelling at my wife and son. God, forgive me for abusing myself with drugs. The miners apologized for their wrongdoings towards each other and they practiced communal confession. Above ground, meanwhile, a drilling crew began to dig through the rock to reach the miners. One of the burly rescuers thought the crew should pray for their work, so they held hands and prayed, let's put all of our trust in the skinny guy. Talking about Jesus' frailty on the cross. Some of you might remember people from all over the world began trying to help or to give or to pray for the men to be saved. Eventually a small hole was made and then it became a little bigger and supplies started to flow down and, and guess what happened? The confessing stopped, the praying stopped, the community dissolved. It's, it's amazing, right? What got them through the crisis, community, faith, proximity, what moved them from a place of regret, remorse, and, and hopelessness, those same things, community, right? What did they abandon the minute the crisis ended? Community. See, this is the truth and the power and the purpose. This is the possibility for all of us uh, of community. And for the church, this as a pastor seems to me to be the single greatest threat faced right now by followers of Jesus. We've gotten out of the habit of community, of gathering. And look, for good reason, right? But we're now out of the habit of being in proximity to one another, involved in each other's lives. We've gotten out of the practice of prioritizing hands touching hands, reaching out with and to one another. What I fear is that when the pandemic finally fades, an entire swath of believers will not have been washed away by the virus. Not be, they'll be washed away, not because of the virus, but because of the lack of community and the claim that what, what happened to their faith. There was a writer once. We don't know who he is. We don't know. Here's what we do know. We know he had a firsthand relationship with the disciples of Jesus. And so we know his, his writings, his teachings are anchored in the teachings of Jesus. This writer, some think it could have been the Apostle Paul or Barnabas or Apollos, he writes to a group of first century followers of Jesus who were Jewish converts to Christianity and, and, and to this church community. Because of their association with Jesus, that community is experiencing persecution and even imprisonment. Some of them, as a result, were beginning to abandon the faith and walking away altogether. This writing, you can actually find it in your New Testament. You can read it today. We call it the book of Hebrews. And in it, it has this constant challenge to these persecuted believers to not give in, to not give up, to not turn around or walk away. He's encouraging their endurance in their faith. And so at one point, here's what he writes to them. He says, let us hold unswervingly. I like that, unswervingly. You ever follow somebody on the highway late on a Friday or Saturday night and they're just all over the road, out of their lane, and you're thinking, man, I, I hope the police are around somewhere because this guy, I, I don't know what's wrong with him. Maybe he's had too much to drink or something, but he's all over the place. He's going to kill somebody. He's, he's dangerous to others with all his swerving. The writer's actually saying kind of the same thing here about faith. He's saying, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Now remember, the audience, right? The audience he's writing to. It's likely that some, if not many of these people, 
knew or saw or met Jesus. And he's appealing to their faith, and not just some kind of storybook faith, but directly to the one that he knew they knew. They had seen him crucified, buried, and they'd seen him resurrected. These same people likely saw the Holy Spirit fall on Pentecost. They had seen and experienced firsthand the power and the miracles of God. And Paul's saying, hey, that same Jesus, that same God is faithful. So hold on unswervingly to what he said and to what you saw. He goes on then with an and. And the and, in a sense, contains the how. Let me explain. How do we hold on unswervingly? How do we endure? How do we not, not walk away? The writer says, and let us consider, which means to actively think about, ponder, or strategize, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. See, there's the how. How do we endure? How do we not give up? We consider how we can spur one another on in faith and love and good works. How do we not give up? How do, how, how do we not give in to hate and anger and rivalry and jealousy and division? Because, look, our faith is not just a head faith. It's a hand's faith. It's a faith marked by deeds. How do we continue on? How do we endure despite hardship? Well, the writer says we figure out how to get in each other's ear, each other's faces, each other's homes, and into each other's hearts, and we provoke one another. That's what that word spur in the Greek means. It means, believe it or not, it means to provoke with a jab or cut so that somebody has to respond. You see, if we're going to hold on to faith, we're going to need each other to provoke one another on. And how do you do that? Next verse, a pretty famous one. Not giving up meeting together or some are in the habit of doing. I think we could 2020 this verse up this warning, and have it say, not giving up meeting together as you all are now in the habit of doing. Guys, this is the danger of our distance. Paul says, don't, don't get in this habit. It's a wrong habit. Get, remain in the right habit. Meeting together is a habit. And you know habits develop, and once they develop, they hold. Don't fall into the habit of not gathering, Paul says. Instead, make the gathering a habit, habitual, part of your routine. But, Paul says, instead of giving up, meet and encourage one another. You know what the writer is saying? What the writer is saying is the same thing Neil Diamond is singing, the same thing that the mouse with the blood pressure cup felt, the same thing Robert Putnam researched, the same thing the Chilean miners experience when it comes to matters of faith, enduring community, closeness, proximity, companionship matter. They are essential to faith enduring. I have to tell you, preaching this message is a little awkward because as a young believer, when I would come to a church and a pastor would talk about the importance of coming to church or insisting on people being at church, to me it always seemed, well, just kind of self-serving. I mean, of course the preacher wants people to show up on Sunday. But both the repeated warnings of the Scripture and my experience as a pastor now over the last 15 plus years have taught me it is anything but that. The habit of the meeting is vital. It's essential to the endurance of your faith. And it's because of this scriptural teaching in my experience that I'm so concerned about people falling out of the habit of the meeting. 
Here's why in my experience, and, and based on the scriptures, when it comes to falling out of the habit of meeting together, of prioritizing the church gathering for you and your family, it always goes one of two ways, and the end is never good. The first is this, some life event, like COVID comes along, or it could be a move to another town, or a change in pastors at the church you go to, or somebody gets their feelings hurt at church by someone or something, and, and so, you know, somebody decides they're going to take a break for a little while. And I don't know, maybe this is your story this morning. This might be why you've lost faith. Most people move away from church and their community of faith long before they move away from their convictions of faith. What do I mean by that? Most people don't wake up one Sunday and say, you know what, I think completely differently now. I'm convinced God's not good and He's not God. I've had a revelation. See, what tends to happen, what I've seen over and over, is people tend to move away from the people of God, they, out of the habit of the community, right? And as they move away from the people of God, they tend over time to move away from the God of the people. And why? Well, because God inhabits His people, their praise, their presence. Look, God is at work in all of the world, of course, but particularly, most acutely, most visibly in the lives of His people. He is in their midst, Jesus said it best, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Jesus' presence is experienced most and best in the gathering. And as I see it and experience it, as I tell you my story and you tell me your story, as I share what God is doing in my life and you share what God's doing in your life, it builds my faith. It makes it easier for me to believe and to trust. This is true for me. In, in many respects, I believe because you guys believe. I, I've seen your faith. I've seen Christ in you. I've seen what Christ has done for you. And it builds my faith. I had a good friend once tell me when they were getting discouraged in their faith and they had some doubt creeping in, one of the things that helped them get through it, believe it or not, was their relationship with me. And I, I said, well, well, why? How did I help you? And their answer was, well, you're smart and you believe. And it's funny because I actually feel the same way about her. Paul says, you have to be so careful. It's a habit thing. Don't get out of the habit. It's so, so dangerous. Parents, listen to me now. Please, this is, this is so important for your family and for your children. Do not let your family get out of the habit of meeting together with other believers. You are singularly responsible for this, for prioritizing the gathering of the church, of making it your habit. Look, Joan and I did some things right and we did some things wrong in raising our kids, but I think they would tell you. I think that the one thing we did right was we prioritized the gathering long before I was the pastor. My kids needed to see other families in town, other kids in town who believed, who had stories and experiences to share. It is the single most responsible reason that all of my kids are followers of Christ. In fact, boil down, you guys are that reason. Did it mean every week and every meeting? Of course not. There's a tension here. You don't want your kids to hate church or resent it. We would give our kids a choice sometimes when they got older. 
which meeting they would go to, youth group or Sunday morning. And then when they could drive, we would even let them miss now and then because of other opportunities that they have. But the key was to never let the habit fade or wane. I have to tell you, if you want your faith to endure, if you want your kids to come to know, love, and walk with Jesus, you have to keep the habit of coming to church, the gathering. The writer of Hebrews, he actually addresses another way in which this habit gets broken. It's earlier in the letter, but he has the same solution. He writes again to those people, these people under persecution. They're about to give up. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But, and here comes the solution. What's the solution? How do you see to it that you do not turn away from God? Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Did you see what he did? He chronicles the problem and then the solution. And the problem is this path. Did you see it? He says, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. Sin, the Bible's word for missing the mark of God, unfollowing God, if you will, it is not born out of an action, but out of the heart. James, Jesus' birth brother, wrote, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Sin, the sin that does so much damage to us and our lives and our hopes and our dreams and our plans and the lives of others, first it's conceived in the heart, then it's accomplished, and the result is always the same, death. How do we nip this thing in the bud? How do we stop the downbound train? Community. How do we make sure we don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God? We encourage one another daily so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We do it by meeting, by gathering regularly. The writer even recommends daily. And why? Because sin lies, and we need each other to point these things out in community, companionship, relationship, proximity. Hebrews goes, look, here, here's the path. First, you get something in your heart, some kind of lie, some kind of lust, some kind of desire, and it begins to cause you, according to the writer, it begins to cause you to lose your faith in God. That can be interrupted, right? That can be stopped by loving communities where repentance and confession and accountability to one another exist. Think about the minors, right? But if it does not come into play, if it is not checked, then eventually you will become hardened by sin's deceitfulness and you won't hold your faith till the end. You will walk away. This is my experience in ministry. As I said earlier, very few people wake up on a Sunday and go, you know, I don't believe anymore what I believed on Saturday. I'm not going to church. See, a second path is often this. Sin takes hold in somebody's heart, a desire or a lust for something sometimes someone, which they, they know they want for themselves, but they know that God does not want for them. 
And that desire is so strong, that deception is so deep that they don't want to hear the truth or know the truth or face the truth. So the first thing they do when they get trapped in sin is to stop going to church. I see it all the time. It's ironic, right? It's just like with the coronavirus. The one thing we need to stay healthy to overcome sickness is community. But ironically, quarantine cuts us off. Same thing with sin. The one thing that we need to help us overcome that could break the chain or cycle is community. But, ironically, we cut ourselves off. The teachings of the Scriptures and my experiences are this. You can drift from God as a result of drifting from His people. Or you can drift from His people because you're drifting from God. But both have the same net result you will die. You see, if you want to live physically longer, the data is clear. Get into community. If you want to live eternally, spiritually, if you want to have a faith that will last and endure, the answer is exactly the same. Stay or get into community, the gathering. So here's my challenge to you as we get ready next weekend to kick off another year of ministry together here at Menham Hills. It's a four-part challenge. Number one, make church your habit either for the first time or again. If you've forsaken meeting together for now due to COVID concerns, I completely understand that. Stay engaged online. But if you've forsaken meeting together because you're just out of the habit, stop it. As your pastor, I'm telling you, it's way too dangerous. How do you build a habit? You know this. The first thing you do is you embrace the benefit, right? Few people eat kale or jump on ellipticals because it tastes good or is fun. They do it, they make it a habit because the result is important. A faith that endures for you and your family and your children and generations of your family to come, that's important. A heart not deceived by sin is important. So you embrace the benefit. And then you say, I've got to block off the time. I've got to commit to setting it aside as a holy priority. It comes first. If you're married, you hold one another accountable to this. You set your intentions. You prepare for roadblocks, kids' sports, late nights, Saturdays, but you come up with a plan and you execute the plan. Number two, can I ask you, as we launch this new ministry year together, to get into a small group. James told us to encourage each other daily so that we're not tempted and carried away. Now, how am I going to know your temptations, your heart, your story, your life? How will there be any accountability one to another unless we break down into smaller groups and begin to know and walk with one another? I mean, Janet Klaseski is just crushing it leading this ministry. She's developed community groups, men's groups, women's groups, prayer groups, you name it. Commit to one. Give it a try, at least for a season. And then finally, there's this. Be a friend. Far too often, we're far too fearful of being the kind of friend the Scripture is talking about. One who spurs another on. One who provokes, jabs, cuts a friend so that they have to respond. Can, and this works both ways. This is kind of number three and number four, right? You have to be a friend. Yeah, you have to have a friend and be a friend. Can I encourage you to boldly share your stories with one another? 
of what God is doing in your life, of your faith. Share them with me. I need to hear them. Can I encourage you to find that type of friend in the faith that you can share your temptations and your doubts with so that they can help? Can I encourage you then to be that kind of friend so that when you see a brother or a sister that you have a close relationship with, going in the wrong direction, maybe walking away from the gathering, maybe, maybe pulling themselves out of community, maybe turning away from Jesus. Can I encourage you to correct them lovingly? Please don't call me and ask me to do it. I could show you that's not even biblical. If you have this kind of friendship with someone where this is appropriate, and only you can judge that, I'm not deputizing you to be the sin police, but if you're in relationship with someone who you see is either walking away from God or walking away from God's people, because there is so much for them at risk, can I ask you to have enough love for them to spur them on or spur them back? Christian community, proximity, intimacy, companionship, hands touching hands, reaching out, touching me, touching you. The gathering in both large and small ways is the key to a faith that endures. It's how we finish what the Scriptures repeatedly call the race of faith. Some of you might have heard that last week my son Caleb Caleb is my adventurer. He will do all kinds of crazy things just because they're a challenge. He posted about this last week. You might have seen it. He had signed up to run a 100-mile race, four 25-mile loops, on what he found out later was a very hilly course. Apparently, the last 11 miles were directly uphill. Well, Joan and I took Caleb out, and we got a hotel room and slept overnight the first night, got up at 4 in the morning, and got him started on his race in the dark. We had to leave the next morning, but before we left, we waited for him to come through at 25 miles. And when he did, he was in the top handful of people. He looked fantastic. The kid wasn't even breathing hard. The only complaint that he had was that his, his leg was hurting, and I didn't think much of it because he was doing so well. So, again, we had seen him at the nine-mile mark or the 25-mile mark, so we took off for home, knowing that my son Caleb's brother John was going to show up and see him, meet him at the 50-mile mark. Well, at the 50-mile mark, Caleb came through in second place. There was only one problem. He looked at John and said, I can't feel my legs. And so John said, well, you know, I, I was going to run a couple miles with you during the night, but if you want, I could run with you now. But if we do that, then I couldn't, can't run with you at night. And Caleb just looked at him and said, I need you to run with me now. And so John had brought some running shoes with him. John, who had not trained for the event at all, John headed out with Caleb on the run. They went another 10 miles, and it was at that point where Caleb started to slow down, and he was starting to say to John, I, I don't think I can do it. My legs aren't holding me up anymore. And, uh, and John said, well, let me see if I can get you some sticks to help you. And so John went off into the woods and came back with two big kind of walking sticks. So Caleb was able to support his weight for another five miles. Um, and then at that point, Caleb said, I, I don't know what more I can do. And, and John kept convincing him that, well, we can keep make, we'll make it to the next station. Long story short, John showed up to give Caleb some water, and John wound up running 20 miles with him so Caleb could get to the 70-mile mark. Friends, I'm convinced 
that if we did this one for another, there's nothing we can't accomplish. If you and I would pursue community, prioritize the gathering, get into small groups, spur one another on, we would be like John, pacing each other well, preparing ourselves to cross the finish line with arms raised in victory. We'll be setting the pace to finish the race. We, like Paul, will be able to confidently say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. With the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, listen to this, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We matter to one another. So let's gather. And what a great way to recommit to that with our picnic right here in the park next Sunday, our, excuse me, next Saturday night, our kickoff Saturday night. Bring a friend. I need to see you then.